This JMR podcast is sponsored by the Journal of Medical Regulation, serving for over a century as the premier publication on physician licensure, discipline, and regulation. To learn more, visit jmronline.org. Welcome to the JMR podcast. I'm David Johnson, your host for today's podcast. We're recording on February 8th for our first podcast in 2021, and my guest today is Frances Kane. She serves as Director of Assessment at the Federation of State Medical Boards. Ms. Kane is the lead author on the article, Characteristics and Outcomes of Individuals Engaging in USMLE Irregular Behavior which appears in the current issue of the Journal of Medical Regulation. Francis, welcome to the JMR podcast. Hi, Dave. Happy to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you joining us, Francis. Now, Francis, before we jump into the specifics of your article, can you take a minute to provide kind of a quick reminder to our re- listeners of uh, some of the USMLE basics about the program itself? Sure. Um, So the USMLE is a national medical licensing exam for both U.S. and internationally trained physicians. The USMLE is composed of three exams, or steps as we call them, step one, step two, and step three. For U.S. students, they typically take steps one and two while they're in medical school. Uh, Step three is taken after graduation from medical school, usually during residency. Uh, So that's kind of the typical pattern for U.S. or domestic students. It's a little more variable for international students and graduates. That's helpful. I I suspect there may be some listeners not quite as familiar with USMLE, so it seems like smart to start with a few of those basics. Uh, Francis, maybe setting the stage even just a little bit more, what do we mean by irregular behavior? I mean, What kind of behaviors are we actually talking about? Yeah, so uh, the USMLE program, and I'm just going to kind of read from our bulletin here, but the program defines irregular behavior as any action by USMLE applicants, examinees, or others that could compromise the validity, integrity, or security of the USMLE process. Um, In layman's terms, or sort of how I tend to think of it day to day, Um, It may be easier to think of irregular behavior as exams that can give an examinee an advantage on the exam, uh, that could give an ineligible or fake examinee access to the exam, or that could compromise the exam's content or integrity. So that would include obvious behaviors like taking notes into the exam room in order to try to cheat or falsifying an application in order to try to get access to the exam. But it also includes behaviors like falsifying score reports or transcripts, or even sharing test questions and answers with other examinees. Hmm, okay. Uh, these sound like serious behaviors. So is, is cheating a major problem for USMLE? I mean, I, I can't imagine we're talking about large numbers. Correct. Yes. Um, Yeah. Admittedly, it's not huge in terms of numbers. Thank goodness. Um, So, for example, in the study we just did, which looked at data from 2006 to 2015, we identified 165 individuals who were found guilty of engaging in irregular behavior. 
So that's, let's see, uh, 165 people over the course of 10 years. So not quite 17 people a year. Um, on the other hand, you could think of it as, you know, that's more than one person a month. Um, so it sounds a little bit shocking, perhaps, if you think of it that way, um, mm -hmm. particularly if you think about the types of behaviors, cheating, posting test questions and answers, falsifying scores. Um, but yeah, in comparison, though, the total number of U.S. only exams administered each year is around 135,000 to 140,000. So in comparison, it's very, very small number of individuals who actually engage in irregular behavior. Okay, well, that, that, that's good to know. Yes. Uh, well, your article, Francis, um, states that some of the most common types of irregular behavior tend to involve things like falsified information and this phrase, security violations. Can you talk uh, about each of those? And in particular, with the latter, what, what kinds of behavior would be involved with a security violation? Yeah, so um, falsified information would encompass behavior from things like um, providing knowingly false information on a USMLE application to changing a score or the pass-fail outcome on a USMLE score report on transcript, uh, score report or transcript. And um, believe it or not, we've actually seen cases of physicians who have falsified a passing score from uh, a low pass, if you will, to a higher pass. So um, it's not just a matter of falsifying a failing score to a passing score. Right. Um, so that's sort of what falsified information is, a little self-explanatory. Okay. Um, security violations would be things like seeking unauthorized access to the exam or exam content. So that would include, for example, soliciting exam questions in an online chat room or even sharing exam content with other examinees. Um, again, whether after the exam, uh, via a chat room online or even in person at the test centers. Um, typically these days, obviously with uh, the internet being so prevalent in our lives, uh, most of the sharing of content we see or that we find does occur on websites and chat rooms and social media platforms, but it could include sharing exam content with a fellow USMLE examinee at the test center. Yeah, uh, Francis, you know, I asked about specifically those two infractions, and yet uh, maybe I should have started with something even more fundamental, uh, the process used mm -hmm. by USMLE to actually resolve <laughs> cases where there's an allegation of irregular behavior. So can, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, how do you find or how does USMLE find these cases? And who actually makes the decision that, yes, what has been described was indeed irregular behavior? Sure. So um, in terms of finding the cases, the process varies a little bit uh, depending on the behavior that's involved and where in the exam uh, process or application process the behavior occurred. So something like falsifying information on an application um, is usually identified by program staff as they are registering the individual for an exam. Um, for a regular behavior that occurs during the exam, mm -hmm. we rely heavily on the test center staff, the proctors, um, to monitor the examinees and to report any suspected or alleged irregular behavior 
to the program so that we can further review it and investigate it. Uh, we do have program staff that routinely monitor the internet. So we monitor online websites, chat, chat rooms, and social media uh, for postings of, ex of exam content or other proprietary information. Uh, once a decision has been made that behavior rises to the level of irregular behavior as defined by the program, then it goes to what we call the USMLE Committee for Individualized Review, or the CIR, as we more commonly call it. Um, the CIR is composed of physician and public members that are appointed by the Federation, by the National Board of Medical Examiners, and by the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates, or ECFMG. Uh, the members themselves of the CIR are physicians from the medical education and training community, as well as the state board community. Uh, the Federation also appoints a state board executive director as a public or non-physician member to the committee. And more recently, we've also um, had a spot on the committee for a medical resident. So mm -hmm. it, it really is a jury of your peers, if you will, for the individuals that come before that committee. Um, the committee itself meets five times a year. Um, typically, the meetings are held at the National Board's offices in Philadelphia when we're able to meet in person. Uh, obviously, last year, those were uh, held virtually uh, since we weren't able to meet in person. And uh, during the meetings, individuals who have been accused of irregular behavior, they're given the opportunity to appear in person to present their case and to answer any questions that the committee has. Um, and if they so choose, they can appear with an attorney. They don't have to, but they are allowed to bring an attorney if they would like. Um, and we also have an external independent court reporter there to record the appearance. So it's a very formal process. I mean, it's very similar to what you would see in any court case. Hmm, okay. Um, yeah, so it's um, very formal. Once the uh, individual has presented their case, presented their information, uh, they're excused. The committee then deliberates, um, again, sort of considers what they've heard from the physician, um, either there in person or the, the um, individual, if they can't travel to the meeting or if they're not able to appear, uh, we do allow them the opportunity to appear via phone or to just you know, submit a written statement if they want to. But the committee takes all that information into consideration um, and then essentially deliberates uh, just like, a, again, a normal jury would in any sort of uh, court case. So the committee uh, then reviews all of the information available to them and uh, makes a decision on the case. Well, that's that's helpful to hear and I, reassuring, I guess, that this is not a, an instance in which one person by themselves is somehow making this uh, very uh, this unilateral decision that has such tremendous potential impact. Um, so, Francis, let's let's say then someone has gone through this process you've just described, a uh, fairly formal process with the Committee on Individualized Review. And the committee has found that, yeah, they engaged in irregular behavior. So what are the potential sanctions or penalties that can be applied? So um, once they're found to have engaged in irregular behavior, there's an automatic reporting of that finding on their score report and on future transcripts. 
um, if a school report or a transcript has already gone out for the exam in question, then we do send out a corrected copy to anybody who may have already received the, the quote unquote clean copy, if you will. Um, in addition to that annotation, uh, future transcripts also include what we call the determination letter from the CIR. So that letter really summarizes the case. So it, uh, at the beginning of the letter, it summarizes the behavior that the individual engaged in. And then towards the end of the letter, it uh, lays out the committee's findings. So beyond the annotation and the information that we send out with the transcript, uh, the committee has to decide a couple of other things. Uh, one is whether or not to bar the individual from the USMLE. And two, whether to report the irregular behavior finding to the Federation's Physician Data Center. Um, barring the individual, as, as you might expect, can be quite a complex and difficult decision um, beyond the simple yes-no decision of whether to bar the individual. The CIR also has to decide how long the bar will last. Um, and typically, the bars range from a year to three years. It, it really kind of varies depending on how egregious the behavior is. Um, but they also have the option of, in addition to barring the individual, they can add an additional stipulation that at the end of the bar, the individual can only have access to USMLE upon the request of a state medical board who has been fully informed of the irregular behavior. Hmm. Um, so that really um, is kind of a, a death knell, if you will, for, for those individuals, because to date at least, we have never had a state medical board come back and request access to USMLE for any individual who had that bar plus that additional stipulation. And then again, you know, the committee being composed of physicians and members of the public, you know, they make these, uh, they take these decisions very seriously. They're acutely aware of the impact to the physician's career, um, not only their future license, but also their, um, you know, potential of getting even into a residency program. So they, they take right. the responsibility very seriously and, and don't make these decisions lightly. Well, uh, the, the penalties you describe really seem significant. And uh, obviously mm -hmm. a bar from the exam would be a good example of that. But uh, uh, frankly, even that finding, the finding itself of irregular behavior, I think, as I understood you, the fact that that appears then on the transcript means that at the very least, that person's going to have to explain this right. later on down the road, whether it's to a licensing board or to a residency program, I guess, correct? Right, right. Yeah. correct. Yes. Yeah, so that's, and you know, that's, those are all things that the committee uh, talks about as they're deliberating um, you know, what what will be the impact to this physician's career, both in terms of residency and future licensure. Yeah. Well, Francis, clearly those are some pretty significant penalties. And in fact, your article presented some interesting data on the impact of penalties mm -hmm. such as this. And so I, maybe you could talk a little bit about that particular piece. Yeah. So um, in terms of ultimate impact, um, so we looked at the ability of these 165 individuals who were found to have engaged in irregular behavior to, uh, one, complete the full USMLE sequence. Uh, so that means going all the way through and taking and 
completing or passing step three, which is the final exam. And then secondly, uh, their ability to obtain licensure in the United States. So looking at the first one, uh, completing the full sequence, we found that only 26% had gone on to pass all three steps. Uh, so that's only 43 of the 165 individuals actually got to the point of uh, taking step three and passing step three and being eligible for licensure in that regard. In terms of actually obtaining a license, only 16% or 27 of the 165 individuals had obtained a full unrestricted medical license by 2019. Um, a review of those 27 individuals found that most of them, 52%, had a security violation as their regular behavior. Another 30% had a procedural violation. And then finally, 19% had either disruptive behavior or falsified information. So yeah, I mean, it's pretty significant impact to the physicians, both in terms of completing the exam and ultimately getting a license. Yeah, that is interesting information because that simply confirms that, you know, the finding of irregular behavior has tremendous potential implications for somebody's ability ultimately to practice medicine in this country. Uh, in fact, as I recall, that's, that is consistent, is it not, with an earlier piece of research that uh, looked at uh, irregular behavior as uh, adjudicated through USMLE? And I think that earlier piece found something similar, correct? That that finding of irregular behavior tended to really reduce the likelihood of completing the sequence and being licensed. Yeah, that's correct. I don't have that uh, specific data in front mm -hmm. of me handily ready, sure. but yeah, that's correct. This is So this is the second article that's looked at um, individuals who have engaged in irregular behavior and sort of the ultimate outcomes for them. And yeah, so it's the findings that uh, we found in our research mirrors what was found in the earlier mm. research, that it's really you know, less than a third or around a third who ultimately complete the sequence and, you know, even fewer who actually get a license. I, I will say the um, earlier study, obviously, it went a little bit further back and actually mm. included um, USMLE when it was administered in a paper and pencil format. Um, right. So back then, a lot of the irregular behavior was around what we call timing violations. Um, and essentially what that amounted to were individuals who were, you know, bubbling their Scantron answers after the proctor called time mm. for, for a section or a book, um, which I found um, typically doesn't have much impact on a, a state board's licensure decision. Uh, um, you know, so I would say sort of the, the difference in the current study is that the behaviors have gotten more egregious over time. Um, certainly, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the cheating that we see occurs online. Obviously, the you know again, the internet's very prevalent in our lives these days. So, uh, just the presence of the internet and sharing exam content has become much more prevalent in terms of irregular behavior cases as well. Hmm. Well, you know, over the years, Francis, I know you and I have talked about exam security quite a bit, mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I know we've talked about is that it seems like the human element uh, mm -hmm. really remains the weak point in any exam security system, not, not specific to USMLE. But I wonder if you yeah. could just kind of reflect on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, you you mentioned that the human element and other exam programs, and certainly, um, you know, irregular behavior and cheating isn't endemic to the USMLE program. I think, you know, the we've heard of other exam programs that uh, examinees have been caught cheating on, or even the more recent cases of, you know, parents trying to help their kids get into college by falsifying their college applications. So right. it's certainly not... Um, exclusive to USMLE. I think um, from a public uh, protection standpoint, I think it maybe hurts a little bit more that these are future physicians that are engaging in this behavior. But yeah, it's certainly not exclusive to USMLE. Um, but looking at what we see, um, the, yes, the human element is still a, a huge factor in this, uh, in these cases. And a couple of things come to my mind. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we rely heavily on the test center staff to both detect and report suspected irregular behavior. Um, but that in and of itself relies on the proctor actually witnessing the behavior. The other human element interaction that comes to mind is um, in residency. So we've seen cases where residents have falsified a score report, a USMLE score report, and provided that to their residency program. Uh, typically, the cases that come to mind or that we've seen for that are instances where a resident is nearing completion the end of year two, so they need a passing score on step three in order to get a full unrestricted license and then to progress into year three in residency. Um, so in those instances where the residency program um, needs to see evidence of the passing step three score, I think most programs tend to ask the resident for a copy of the score report. And unfortunately, we've seen, you know, more than one case, I can think of, you know, three, four or five off the top of my head where a resident has falsified that step three score report and provided the falsified version to the program. So, you know, obviously I think that speaks to the trust element between sure. the residency program, the director and the resident, as there should mm -hmm. be. Um, you know, but it's it's funny when you not funny is probably not the right word, but when you when you speak to the program directors um, about these individuals, they get the score report and they don't think there's something quite right about it, um, and they call us. I know a couple of times where I've spoken to the residency director, and they're just completely taken aback and blindsided that a resident would do this. You know, they they sound a bit gobsmacked when you talk to them and sure. confirm that yes, you were provided a falsified score report. And what you were telling me that you are seeing is not reflective of what we have in our database for this person. Um, so again, there's that, that human element. Um, obviously, again, in terms of overall population, uh, this is very rare, but um, obviously the stakes are also very high. And again, um, the instances where we have seen this often are those individuals who have to have a passing step three score mm -hmm. in order to progress into the residency. So, you know, the stakes are very high. So um, they have some incentive to engage in this behavior. So we do encourage all residency programs um, to not just request, but to actually require that their residents um, submit or request an official USMLE transcript uh, of their step three scores and that the residency programs don't just accept score reports because we have seen instances where those are falsified. Sure.
Sure. Well, you know, Francis, just thinking about your article and mm-hmm. the listeners to this podcast, is there a takeaway message that you would like to leave with uh, board members and staff from state medical boards? And in fact, taking it a step further, is there a message, a takeaway message to examinees? Yeah, I think, um, so as I was just saying about the the residency program directors, mm-hmm. I think my, my takeaway message to them uh, would be to, again, don't accept the step three score report. Make sure you're getting an official USMLE transcript so you know that you are getting uh, the official score. Right. Um, and Francis, just to be yeah. clear, when you said don't accept the step three score, meaning like a photocopy of right, an official correct. document. Okay. Right, correct. Okay. Yeah. So uh-huh. we have, um, for the step three scores, the Federation sends those out directly to the program. So it doesn't go through the examinees or the physician's hands at all. It goes directly from our offices uh, to the residency program. So they know they're getting it directly from us unaltered. Um, in terms of the state medical boards, you know, certainly a finding of irregular behavior is a red flag for a state medical board, for the staff that's reviewing the license application, or for the board, um, should they be reviewing the application as well. Um, you know, and I, I know from speaking with the boards that they take that information seriously um, and try to investigate it as much as they can. And so I would certainly encourage them to continue to pay close attention for, to that, to um take the time to look at the information, Mm -hmm. to call the individual for a meeting with the board, if at all possible. Um, Contact us. The Secretariat's office for the USMLE program usually is able to provide some additional information to the state medical board if it's requested. So, you know, again, the the state boards take this seriously and um, just sort of encourage them to continue to do that. Um, In terms of examinees, I think the message is, is simple it would be, don't do it. <laughs> it, it it's not worth yeah. it. Um, certainly, I, I would be remiss to not acknowledge the stress that these examinees are under. We know they're under great stress as they go through the whole USMLE process. Um, you know, they need to get high scores. They want to get high scores on their exams. Um, however, you know, as, as we show in a case study in the article, um, you know, even if you have a finding of irregular behavior, even if you're able to get a license in one state, that doesn't mean that you're gonna be able to get a license in all states. While it's understandable, the human desire to wanna take a shortcut, um, it's also incredibly short-sighted and Mm -hmm. there can be career-ending repercussions. Um, You know, you may not get into a residency program. You may not be able to get a license and practice here in the United States, so. Again, you know, not not to sound glib, but I would just say, don't do it. It's just incredibly yeah. short-sighted. It'd be nice well, to the proctors, you know. They're just <laughs> doing their jobs at the test center. <laughs> well, clearly, at the very least, someone is going to be explaining that. Uh, they're going to be sharing that story and explaining their right. actions multiple times down the road, even if they Absolutely. do manage to get into a residency program and gain a license later on. Okay. Yep. Well, Francis, thank you so much. Uh, this was very interesting, and hopefully our, our listeners found this enlightening as well. Uh, our listeners can access Frances and her colleagues' article, Characteristics and Outcomes of Individuals Engaging in USMLE Irregular Behavior. That is now available at jmronline.org. And I hope everyone will join us for our next JMR podcast. 
Have a great day. This JMR podcast is sponsored by the Journal of Medical Regulation, serving for over a century as the premier publication on physician licensure, discipline, and regulation. To learn more, visit jmronline.org.